I'd like to begin this morning with asking God to speak through His Word. Will you bow with me? Oh God, we pray this morning that the dead will hear Your voice. We pray that Your Word, empowered by Your Spirit, would bring life to our souls. Lord, I pray that You would strengthen the hearts and resolve of struggling saints, that You would confirm their faith. I pray that You would awaken the hearts of those who have said no to You time and time again. I pray that You would grant them light that they might see and life that they might live. We pray these things in the name of the Savior, Jesus the Messiah, our Lord and King. In His name we pray, amen. We live in a day awash with fake news and false advertising, so much so that it's hard at times to figure out what's really going on. Have you found that to be so? Like you do your research, and then you realize that the algorithms led you to a certain outcome, depending on what you wanted to find. And so you're not even sure after you've done your research whether the research was all that accurate. And the court of law establishing reliable historical truth requires firsthand witnesses. And even in everyday life, we need reliable testimony to verify something to actually be so. And with a lot of topics, knowing truth from falsehood may not be all that important to us personally. I mean, there's a lot of things you can know or not know about history, uh, yesterday's history or history from 3,000 years ago, and it's really not going to change your life whether you get it right or wrong. But if we're talking about someone claiming to reveal who God is, someone who says He brings the way of forgiveness from our sin, someone who says He grants deliverance from death, those kinds of bold claims need verification. And what Jesus declares about Himself and God the Father, in John chapter 5, is bold. And the question is, is He telling the truth? And how can we be sure? To answer those questions, we're looking at verses 31 to 40 of John chapter 5. Christ says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has Himself borne witness about me. His voice you've never heard, His form you've never seen, 
and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Witnesses to Jesus Christ and who he is to verify the testimony that he's giving is actually true. In verses 31 to 35, you have the testimony of the forerunner, John the Baptist. In verse 36, the testimony of Jesus' miraculous works. In verses 37 to 40, the testimony of the Scriptures. Now, before we go any further, we really need to step back and ask the question, why is Jesus talking about these divine witnesses to who He is? I mean, why bother? What's the point of this? Well, remember what is going on at the time He says these words. Because Jesus was doing miracles of healing on the Sabbath day, and because He justified doing so by declaring that He was carrying out the will of His Father, making Himself equal with God, there was tremendous opposition to what He was doing. These two main reasons, working on the Sabbath and claiming himself to be equal with God as Father, are the reason that the Jewish leaders were persecuting him to the point of actually conspiring to kill him. In fact, much of the gospel accounts are about this ongoing conspiracy to get rid of Jesus. So Jesus is pushing back against this rejection and hatred But will you note from our text this morning that his motive is not just to refute them, but to save them. His heart as Savior comes through even in a strong interaction with these hate-filled enemies. Note in verse 34 of John 5, he says, I say these things so that, here's the purpose, you may be saved. And then verse 40, he concludes, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. He's saying these things. He's giving this testimony. He's pointing to these witnesses to save you. He's doing this to give you life. That's the purpose Jesus is going through this at all. Jesus is manifesting the heart of God toward a world of sinners. Think about it. Apart from God's love for the world, no one could ever be saved. While we were still God's enemies, God sent His Son to die for us and proved His love. Every sinner who repents and believes, crossing over from being an enemy of God to a child and ally of God, does so because of the saving heart of God. And throughout history, God has repeatedly rescued even the most dedicated of his enemies, people like Saul, who killed Christians and hauled them into court, who became the apostle Paul, who advanced the gospel in many regions that had never heard it before. That makes all the more tragic the state of those who persist in refusing the rescue that Jesus brings. He's saying, I'm saying these things so that you might be saved and you might have life. And yet he could say to those in front of him that day, yet you refuse. You refuse. 
There's an inescapable cost of rejecting Christ that is beyond terrible. And that class of individuals continues to this day. Those that often have had much information, much revelation, much exposure to Christ and His Word, and yet they willfully resist and refuse His overtures to them. They hold God to be a lie or a liar. Now, those folks have been around throughout the centuries. The psalmist calls them fools, those who say God is non-existent. And yet, Jesus reaches out to them, and He reaches out not just to them, not just to the atheists. He reaches out to men who believe God does exist but refuse to believe that Jesus is the one that God sent. So, what is this testimony that Jesus mounts here in our text this morning? First, the testimony of the forerunner, verses 31 to 35. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There's another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and a shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while, in His light. Now, Jesus isn't saying that you can't trust His words. He's referring to the reality that establishing the reliability of any testimony requires more than just the self-testimony of one person. And listen, if you're going to bank your soul on this, if you're going to live your life for this, if you're going to risk death for this, you want to know it's so. And you, you want to have verification. You need other witnesses to back it up. The Old Testament law required two or three witnesses to make any judgment valid in a court of law. So Jesus starts with the testimony of his forerunner, John the Baptist. Now, John's witness may not seem all that important to us today. We're 2,000 years removed from the time that he ministered. We're 6,300 miles removed from the place where he preached. But at the time that Jesus refers to John, John is a first century celebrity, unlike any other man alive at the time. I mean, he, he was top news. He was someone everybody knew about. Even before he was conceived, the angel Gabriel prophesied to the father of John in Luke 1, he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. He's the promised forerunner. Jesus, John preached in the wilderness of Judea, and we're told that Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about Jordan were going out to him in Matthew 3, 5. Now, think about this. If you heard that somebody was preaching out in the sticks near Pumpkin Town, how many people are going to go see him? I mean, maybe if you've got some extra time and maybe you want to post a, you know, a video to YouTube and see how many, 
you know, whether it goes viral or not. But other than that, it's like, who's the kook out there? Okay? I mean, he eats weird stuff, and he dresses weird, too. And he's, he's out in the desert. Oh, I'm sure you're going to find lots of people out in the desert. That's the place to go. But he was so extraordinary that he didn't have to go to where the people were. The people came to him. So explosive was the impact of John on his generation that people wondered whether he might actually be the promised Messiah, according to Luke 3.15. Even Herod Antipas, who ended up beheading him, was intrigued with John. It was to appease his wife that he beheaded him. But we read in Mark 6, Herodias, that was his wife that John said he had illegally married, had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not for... Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, this is Herod, he was greatly perplexed. In other words, it, it pricked his conscience, and, and yet he heard him gladly. This was a powerful man, empowered with the Spirit of God. So much so that the leaders of the Jews could not ignore the impact on the region. They actually sent a delegation from Jerusalem to John to discern who he was. We read about it in John 1. This is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? You know, if he hadn't had the impact, it would be, who cares? But because he had such impact, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. I am not the Messiah. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? Moses had promised a prophet would come like Moses that the people would turn to. And he answered, no. And they said to him, who are you? We needed to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? In fact, later they're going to say, you know, what right do you have to be baptizing people if you're basically a nobody? And he said, I, in the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord as the prophet Isaiah said, every mountain shall be brought low, every valley exalted to make a highway for God. Isaiah had prophesied, and he said there would be a voice in the wilderness. I'm just the one that Isaiah talked about who would prepare the way of the Lord. Most significant is that it was God who sent John on his mission. We're introduced to John in John 1, verse 6. There was a man sent from God. That's the first thing we know about him in the Gospel of John, a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light but came to bear witness about the light. But the Jewish leaders whom John called a brood of vipers. That's the way to win friends. (laughs) Did not respond to John's preaching the way the crowds did. When they questioned by what authority John did what he did, or would actually not just John, but later Jesus, Jesus answered with this question in Luke 20. So this is later in the ministry of Jesus. He said, I will answer your question if you'll answer me this question. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death. That's how popular he was. For they are convinced that John was a prophet. 
So they answered, they did not know where he came from. They dodged the question. So what did John testify about Jesus? In John chapter 1, verse 26, John answered them, I baptize with water. Among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. In verse 29, he says, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed in Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Jesus would later say of John in Luke 7, I tell you among none is greater than John. So John's witness is no small matter. He was the forerunner of the promised Messiah, ministering with the spirit and power of Elijah, filled with the spirit from his mother's womb, the last and greatest of a long line of prophets testifying to the coming Messiah. And since Jesus ascended, there have been many others commissioned by God to proclaim who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. The testimony of the prophets fills the earth. There's not a day that goes by, but that people hear their testimony, the testimony of John and the prophets that preceded him, and come to the conviction that Jesus is the promised Savior of the world, repenting of their sin and trusting in him to save him. Those who refuse Jesus do so in opposition to a vast throng of spirit-empowered witnesses to who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. These witnesses are not engaging in mere philosophy or moralism or politics or entertainment. They're not just trying to build churches and empires. They're not trying to feather their own nests. They are witnesses reporting verified historical events following in the train of John the Baptist and the prophets before him. This is significant witness to who Jesus is. And you disregard it at great peril. In fact, when you disregard it, you really, you need to give your reasons why you would be so dismissive of so much testimony. Now, some questions for us to ask, because God's not silent. God's the God who reveals. Why, what does God, having sent messengers like John to the world, reveal about God's character? And think about that a little bit, because it's very popular today to dodge the question like the leaders of Christ's day. We don't know whether it came from heaven or not. Say, well, we don't know whether God exists or not. You know, maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. There's just not enough evidence. Well, to say that means that all you've done is dumped the evidence and then say, oh, there's no evidence. You've gotten rid of the testimony. There's no evidence. Well, that's convenient. So how does God's having sent messengers like John to the world make humanity accountable? And then on a more personal level, who are some significant personal witnesses to who Jesus is that you have known? And what is it about them that made them effective? 
Every one of us who believed in Jesus heard about him from someone. We, we saw his power displayed in their life to where we felt like, hey, this is credible. Th- this is reliable. Who are those people? And what was it about them that made them credible witnesses to you regarding Jesus? Well, Jesus doesn't stop with John's testimony. He also goes to his miraculous works. In verse 36, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. Now, John was sent from God, but John, John is just a human being. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. He uses a word when he says to accomplish. It's the idea of completing, of reaching a goal, of fulfilling a purpose. In other words, these works have an intent behind them, these miraculous works. It's fairly obvious what the intent was. You remember Nicodemus came to Jesus. He knew that the miracles Jesus was doing were significant. Listen to Nicodemus' words in John 3, verse 2. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs. Remember, signs are miracles with a message that you do unless God is with him. His miracles are so extraordinary that people were convinced that Jesus had to be the Messiah. In John 7, verse 31, yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs? Remember, the Christ is the Messiah. Will he do more signs than this man has done? Even Jesus' most determined enemies never disputed that he was working miracles. They were eyewitnesses, and there were many other eyewitnesses. Like, this is verifiable history. John eleven forty seven, 47, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If Jesus weren't doing miracles, they wouldn't have had a problem. The miracles were forcing toward a, a certain conclusion that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the promised Savior, and, and they couldn't accept that because it was too much that they would lose in terms of power and influence. They said, what are we going to do to counteract this influence of these miracles? Really, the only argument they came up with against Jesus' miracles was not that he wasn't doing miracles, but that he did them by the power of Satan particularly casting out demons. Matthew 12, verse 24, when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. So, there's no question about the power. There's no question about the miracles for the contemporaries of Jesus. And these aren't just a bunch of rubes that are easily fooled. They've seen the miracles. I mean, If a blind man can now see when he was blind from birth, how are you going to disprove that? If people are raised from the dead who are four days in already stinking, how are you going to disprove it when they're walking around? The contemporaries of Jesus did not dispute whether or not he did miracles. What they disputed was the significance of those miracles and who empowered him to do it. And that's why Jesus says in John 15, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would have not been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my Father 
also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. We live in an age where miracles are denied for the very reason that they were so significant. They are impossible to explain by naturalistic causes. They are, by definition, supernatural, bigger, higher than nature, and that's exactly the point. That's why people were blown away. This is a dumb illustration, but I'm going to give it anyway. (laughs) If I raise my hand, I haven't dispelled the law of gravity. I've demonstrated my arm is strong enough to pull against it to some degree. Now, if I levitate, that's a little different. I can't pull that off, okay? But, but yeah, raising my arm just means that the arm is strong enough to, to work. It's stronger than the gravity. The gravity's still at work. I'm still pulling against it. Well, miracles don't remove nature. It's just demonstrating that God is stronger than nature. How could the God who created nature not be stronger than nature? I mean, it doesn't make sense that he'd be weaker than what he created. So that's what miracles are. They're connected to God's identity and power. So with these miracles, if we cancel all the eyewitness testimony and instead use deductive reasoning that starts with an anti-supernatural bias, which is the problem with logic. If you start with a false premise, you're going to end up with a false conclusion. We're left with having to explain miracles another way. Okay? So, either they were tricks, like those of a magician, which makes Jesus a deceiver and a liar, or The records of both friend and foe alike, we are counting as fiction. A fiction that could have been easily disproved by the contemporaries, the people alive at the time. But no such proof was given. So we need to ask the question, why are miracles necessary to even the possibility of salvation from sin and death and judgment? I mean... A man to pick up his bed and walk, great. That, that's going to affect his life, but not nearly as much as knowing that my sins have actually been removed from my record. If, if the miracle of, of cleansing me from sin can't happen, then there is no gospel. I need a miracle to raise me from the dead. I need a miracle to remove me from the wrath of God. The gospel, the good news, is all about miracles. It's all about what only God can do. If it were something I could do, if it were something that would just come naturally, then who needs a Savior? We'll save ourselves. So, miracles in the gospel, the scriptures, 
You can't, you can't remove miracles or you've wiped out everything. And just because you remove miracles doesn't make what you believe so. I mean, you can believe a lie, it doesn't make it so. Now, if Jesus did know miracles, what happens to his claims and those of the eyewitnesses? Let's just say, let's just say, okay, Jesus didn't do any miracles. I don't believe in miracles. Jesus didn't do any miracles. Okay. Then tell me about this man who talked about doing miracles and used it as a major proof. Don't be talking to me about how good he was. He would be the worst liar maybe that ever walked the planet, like a colossal fraud, and maybe even worse, those who knew he did no miracles but said he did and went around preaching all over the world, and maybe even worse, fools because they're willing to die for it. See, it just doesn't, it doesn't make sense that the miracles weren't real. Or you end up having to explain other things that are nearly impossible to explain. If we build what we believe about history, and this is just a general question, on other than eyewitness testimony, how reliable is what we believe? Now, we live in an age that's not real cool with history. We like to rewrite history. It doesn't change what history actually was. Okay? If you believe, I mean, think about Think about all the history teachers that'd be out of work if you can just make it up. The, the point, is we need eyewitness testimony to establish verifiable history. And, and our faith is historical faith with reliable witnesses. And here we have the very works and miracles of Jesus testifying to people that the Father had sent him. But there's a third testimony, and that is the testimony of the Scriptures. You know, I can be confused about what I saw, but the Scriptures give me an objective record. It's written down. There's a document. It's documented. Verse 37, the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you've never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the Scriptures. Now, look at that word Scripture. See, script it's referring to what's written down, like script handwriting. And thus, Scriptures is a particular class of writings, the Holy Scriptures, that came from God. And will you note that Jesus is saying those aren't just from man, they're from God. God is bearing witness through those scriptures. Search the scriptures. You search the scriptures because these guys are big Bible scholars because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So the epic story of the Bible, written over the course of 1,500 years by over 40 different authors on multiple continents, is the good news that God is calling out a people for His name. The hero of that story is the promised one on whom the whole rescue plan depends, Jesus, the Messiah. That's the point of the Bible. 
If you think about how the Bible progresses, you see this theme. You have the entrance of sin and death into the world, the promise of the woman's seed that would crush the serpent's head, Genesis 3.15. In Genesis 22, the promise that in the offspring of Abraham, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. In Numbers 24, the promise of a star rising out of Jacob, a ruler out of Judah. In Deuteronomy 18, the promise of a prophet like Moses to whom the people would listen. In 2 Samuel 7, David's descendant that would rule on the throne forever. In 1 Kings 9, he would be an heir to Solomon's throne, but not of the seed of Jeconiah, Jeremiah 22. Yahweh's son would rule in Zion, and all the nations would subject themselves to it, Psalm 2. In Psalm 16, the Holy One's burial, no corruption of His body in the grave, a resurrection. In Psalm 110, the Lord would say to the David's Lord, sit here till I make all your enemies your footstool. In Isaiah 7:14, the promise that He would be born of a virgin. In Isaiah 9:6, that the child would be born and be wonderful, a counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, and that on His shoulder the government would rest. In Isaiah 11.10, a rod of the stem of Jesse would be one to whom all the Gentiles would seek. In Isaiah 35, he would cause the lame to walk, the deaf to hear, the blind to see. Isaiah, by the way, is written 700 years before Christ walked the earth. In Isaiah 53, the righteous servant of Yahweh, wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities, on whom the Lord would lay the iniquity of us all, unjustly accused, killed for the transgression of God's people, laid in a rich man's grave, would justify many, for he would bear their iniquities and make intercession for the transgressors. In Daniel 7, he's the son of man coming in judgment and ruling an everlasting kingdom. In Daniel 9, after 69 sevens of years from the time of the command to rebuild Jerusalem, Messiah the prince will be cut off, but not for himself. In Micah 5, 2, a ruler out of Judah to be born in Bethlehem, whose goings forth have been from everlasting. In Malachi 3, he would suddenly come to his temple and cleanse it. And in Luke 24, after his resurrection, Christ would teach his disciples these things, drawing from Moses and the Psalms and the prophets. So whenever we teach or preach from the Bible, we have to remember the overarching story of this library of ancient documents. It is easy to get lost in the weeds and to miss the point. And the fact is that the Pharisees, even though they believed the Bible was inerrant, even though they believed in miracles, they approached God's Word as a library of rules to which to add their own traditions as a means of winning favor with God. That empowered them and made them proud and made them lost. They missed that the Bible is about a person, the Savior of the world, whom they must trust to save them from their inescapable sin and death. Their tribe continues to this day among the advocates of ceremony, of separatism, of religious rules, much of which are added to the Bible and exalted above the Bible. It's worldly religion. It's man-made. Worldliness preaches a different gospel, that life and happiness are found in some system other than trusting Jesus alone. Worldliness can wear the guise of philosophy, of personal freedom and worth, of atheism or paganism. It even dresses itself up as Christianity sometimes. But the common falsehood is that we can somehow save ourselves. That's 
the lying, fraudulent religion of the world. So when you read and study the Bible, how does Jesus the Messiah's being the hero of the story affect what you read and how you read it? I mean, are you approaching the Bible just as a code of ethics? I mean, it does give a code of ethics. Are you approaching the Bible just as a story? It does give history. Are you approaching the Bible just as beautiful literature? It is beautiful literature. Are you approaching the Bible just as stuff you have to study to pass doctrines class? Or to be ready to preach a sermon? Or are you approaching the Word of God as revealing the Son of God to you? What happens if you do not read the Bible passages in light of Christ-centered gospel? Same thing that happened to these guys that hated Jesus. You'll find a substitute. And what are some common examples of Christ-less interpretations of the Bible? When Christ points to His witnesses, He points to the testimony of the forerunner, the testimony of His miraculous works, and the testimony of Scriptures. And the testimony to who Jesus is continues to this day. Jesus predicted that beginning with His disciples, His apostles and those that followed Him would spread witness to who He is worldwide in Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. At the time Jesus gave those words, where we sit today was the end of the earth. And the testimony reached our shores and reached our ears and changed our hearts. But that testimony needs to continue. So when are you testifying to who Jesus is? What day of the week? What kinds of situations? And who knows you to be a reliable witness to Jesus. We are called to be witnesses to Jesus as well, if we know him. May that witness continue. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you that you've not left us in the dark. Lord, there's some distance we can go on our own. You've made us in your image. You've made us with intellect. You've given us various capacities, but Lord, we, we find ourselves out of our depth when we try to get our head around ultimate reality, when we try to reach connection with you, when we try to purge ourselves of our sin, when we try to escape the claws of death. So God, we look to Jesus, and we rejoice to do so, not as those that believe in fairy tales, but as those who hold to verified history, 
as those who count your witness to be true and Jesus to be the promised Savior of the world. We pray that he might be magnified this day. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.